It's not that there's a sexist cabal, but we have this pre-existing idea that ovaries don't matter. What if being sexed matters? How does the story change when you ask, yes, but what about the female side here? That's the brilliant Kat Bohannon, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. It's a myth-busting tour of biological evolution that re-examines everything we think we know about the human body by placing women at the center. We survived and thrived and managed to evolve into Homo sapiens precisely because we invented gynecology. It's the most important thing that our ancestors ever did. International Women's Day is coming up on March 8th, and on this episode, Kat helps us celebrate. Her work puts the female body in the foreground of biological research. She shares how females have been excluded from it in the past and why that matters for everyone. The more we're able to break the taboo of talking about the female body and all of the things that are so common and even the rare stuff that we go through, it actually does make the world easier to live in for other people with those bodies. Welcome to The Breakout, a show about smashing through life's little boxes and forging your own path. I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. And I'm Kelly Gunther. Carrie and I are people and change experts and best friends. We've spent more than 25 years helping organizations navigate change and get the best out of their people. Come on, we know change is hard, but staying the same can even be harder. On The Breakout, we prove that you can escape expectations, and best of all, we show you how. Welcome, Kat. What does your book break out of? Well, it's uh, large enough to break your window. It's about 600 and something pages, but the last third is notes, and there are lots of jokes. You can do this. Don't be intimidated. It breaks out of a really old, really crap story that how we got here is what the guys did. And we were just like some side character, I guess, behind a hill, just like pounding some tubers saying, oh, sorry, guys, I see you're busy. I'm just going to build the future of our species in my actual body. No big deal. It's nothing. It's nothing. You want a snack? So this book is all about how the new science of what it is to be biologically sexed is driving so much of how we experience our lives if we got ovaries and how much it drives our lives even if we don't have ovaries, it turns out, and have testicles instead or just nothing, you know? So it's a huge sweeping overview of 200 million years of our evolutionary story and how it still matters now. Yeah. First of all, 200 million years and 600 pages, that's really good ratio there, Kat. So I know the book's (laughs) big, but that's pretty good. I'm going to be quite a bit of, I think, a fangirl during this interview because I saw you interviewed. And when I heard you talk about how most of science, biological sciences, are based on the male body because the female body was too complex. So let's just study the male body because it's easier. That's when I just fell in love with you, Kat. And I thought, oh my God, she's taken what everyone has taken as the gospel for years and years and years. And you questioned that piece of like, why are we even studying the male body and why aren't we looking at female body? And then all the the consequences that happened because of that. 
So I'm so thrilled you're here for that. Just one nugget of upending science and the expectations that science has placed on what we study and who we study. Now, I love taking credit for a shit that's not mine. However, (laughs) this book would not exist if it weren't for the research and hard work and activism of literal thousands of scientists, many of them women and non-binary folk, many of them people of color too, who have been driving the new research forward. What this book does is it lets people who are in that world see what's going on. You know what I mean? So my book is a corrective, absolutely, but I'm not the first person making that corrective. I'm the person telling you about it and you may not know about it. And it's also true that because they work really hard pushing against a paradigm that says biological sex doesn't matter, then I'm also the person helping them do what they need to do to change that story. Mm. It's more like that. It's cool that you know my name, um, but if you look in the back matter of my book, there are many, many hundreds of people listed there whose work I'm leaning on. And the reason I wanted to say that wasn't just like a, a kowtow or like a Grammy's thank you moment. It's actually because we forget that science is deeply collaborative. It's actually one of the most cosmopolitan industries, if you want to call it that, or knowledge production zones in the entire world. It's actually a lot of people working together, which also means because scientists are social, that when you have a very social idea, like sex doesn't matter, or that, I don't know, chicks be less important, whatever, right? You know, (laughs) then that means that that's going to subtly influence your science, even though you think it doesn't. So that's a thing too, right? But it's not that there's a sexist cabal. It's that we're going to try and make a good experiment, but we have this pre-existing idea that ovaries don't matter. And so it's cool for us to not study ovaries and it won't matter in the long run because we don't think about ovaries very much, maybe because we got a dick and balls. It just depends who it is. But, you know, (laughs) but there are also female scientists who've been running under that same paradigm. Paradigm shifts are hard. Like if you're doing a podcast called The Breakout, that's the hardest thing to break out of. A paradigm shift is the biggest thing there is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, there is something about the beauty of simplicity and they're trying to control variables and the more complexity and the more variability is not good for your research. So you can kind of understand why it started. I think what's really cool about you being here right now too is International Women's Day is coming up. And so it couldn't be just a better time to talk to you about this. And so talk a little bit more about the premise of Eve and the big ideas that you wanted to challenge in the book. So the premise of the book is a simple thought experiment in many ways. What if being sexed matters? Just what if it matters? What if we were wrong? How does the story change when you ask, yes, but what about the female side here? You know, What if it matters that mammals reproduce the way that we do? We are mammals, probably heard about that. You know, homo sapiens, we're mammals. Well, mammals have a more than 200 million year history, but a lot of what distinguishes us as a body plan, as a group of animals, is how we make babies. Actually, it's easily our most distinguishable trait. It's not actually our fur necessarily, but the fact that we freaking breastfeed The fact that we lactate, the fact that we nurse our babies, all mammals do it, with fluids that we freaking secrete out of our torso, which, come on, spend a second thinking about this. This is a crazy (laughs) idea, is very, very distinctive of us. Um, And it really changes the trajectory, the actual evolutionary path for all mammals, including us. 
The book goes step by step along these key moments in our evolutionary path where the chick side of the story, where the female story really drives important parts of our evolutionary destiny. Now I say destiny in that accidental sense, like this was not a predicted path, but it's just, this is what happened and this is how it shaped it. And this is how we got to be what we are. And at each turn in each chapter, what I'm doing is I'm drawing in modern medical research, new findings and basic science too, that are really changing how we understand our bodies as tied to this trait, right? Like how does being a lactating being change us? right? Mm -hmm. How does that shape our lives from the beginning? And so on and so forth. And live birth and um, our perception as primates and being bipedal and on and on, even being menopausal, deeply changes how and what we are. And it changes our societies too. I heard that there was an element of a sci-fi movie that planted the seed for this book. What was that? There are a number of sci-fi movies because I am a deep nerd. Hi. Um, <laughs> there were many, many key moments, you know, like as a female person, as a femme person too. Let's say we have many triggering moments mm -hmm. over our lives that sort of <laughs> piss us off and make us want to do stuff. What? No. What, cat? No idea what you're talking about. So I had uh, previously heard about this male norm in biology up at Columbia before this moment, but this is the really the moment I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it, right? So I am watching Ridley Scott's prequel to Alien. And, you know, we can all admit that we expect certain things to happen to the main characters in these stories. Like the reason you go is because you're a sadist, own it, you expect people to go and have terrible things happen to them in creative ways. So <laughs> I'm there and the main character of this film is Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. And she has been impregnated with a vicious alien squid, as you do. And so she goes and she finds the med pod, which is like a surgery pod, but on a crash spaceship. And she's like, hey, I need a C-section. This is a very obvious and normal thing to want in this scenario. And uh, the med pod's like, beep, boop, I'm sorry, this med pod is calibrated for male patients only. And she's like, ah, you know, and then there's like, she gives herself a C-section, there's lasers and there's tentacles and it's a nice scene. So, you know, I hear a woman in the row behind me say, shit, who does that? And I'm like, yeah, who does that? Who sends a multi-trillion dollar expedition into space and forgets to make sure that the medicine works on, you know, women. And actually, I already knew, oh, that's us. Actually, that's all of us. That's all of us right now. Mm -hmm. That's why more women wake up on the surgery table because their anesthesia runs out faster than if they were male. That's why people who have endo have been struggling for so long because endometriosis is only recently a thing that's more seriously studied. That's why we're at where we're at. Right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Not enough people know that. I'm going to write a book. Fine. I'll do it. So I go to my agent and I'm like, I'm going to do it. She's like, oh, good. I've been waiting for you to do that. And so now, <laughs> now the book exists a decade later. We'll get back to the interview after this quick break. The breakout comes to you from Abrachi Group. We offer coaching and consulting to help you dig into change. Here's what we know. Only about 10% of us are really self-aware. Without self-awareness, improvement is tough because if you don't know what box you're in, you can't break out of it. That's where we come in. 
We've got a soft spot for people itching to forge a fresh path, the high flyers who need to be nudged out of career ruts, teams who are looking to become more aligned, and yes, even those bold souls who've occasionally worn the jerk badge. Connect with us at abracigroup.com. Kat explained more about the male norm, how it influences what actually gets studied in biological science, and why that's a problem for women and for men too. So in us and in other mammals, when we do have an estrus cycle, it means we have this cascade of hormones that are semi-predictable. They go up, they go down, you know, your progesterone, your estrogens, it's a, a whole thing is happening. What you may not know is that nearly every tissue in your body has sex hormone receptors. That's true in males and females, hmm. which means that when you have hormones varying to that degree, then no matter what you're studying in that body, it's probably a factor, right? And in the sciences, mm -hmm. we want our nice, clean experiments, not just because we're mad scientists, it's because we want to be able to know what our data is really telling us, right? So you want to control for your factors. You want to say, okay, this is definitely the thing I'm looking at and not menstruation, right? You know, not an estrous cycle. Yep. And so it's not necessarily crazy to say, well, maybe we just don't study the females, as the simplest way to remove that from the equation. Like if you remove the bad doing, you know, if you remove the like, well, that's sexist, you know, and the obvious problems that can stem from it, it's not a terrible idea. Unfortunately, in our very real female lives as half of our species, who take medicines that are inevitably developed from basic science, it has real world human consequences. It's absolutely the case that it clearly influences people with female bodies but it actually influences males too. Because across mammals, females are better at not dying. Like you've heard that yeah. men don't live as long as women. You've heard that. Yep. We used to think it was about behavior. We used to think it was about boys doing dumb boy stuff, but also make it tigers. Like across mammals, we thought it was a behavior thing. Turns out, no, it's actually a lot more having to do with like metabolism and cellular repair and what actually causes cancer. Like even in lab animals, it's often the case that the males die sooner. They age faster. It seems to be a mammalian thing. And we don't entirely know why. Mm. Part of the reason we don't know why is because we've understudied females, right? So we don't know what the mechanisms are. Like there's kind of a loose model that says maybe estrogen is protective for mm -hmm. reasons we don't entirely, we're working on it, okay? But there's a big knowledge gap to fill. So when we finally study sex differences, that means we're paradoxically going to save a lot of cis men's lives. Like actually just men, like people with balls are going to live better by studying people who don't have them. Just that, just that, it turns out. Yeah, I think maybe I've heard your line saying, if the men want to live longer, castration is sometimes the answer. Well, that's not a line. That's just science. That's just fact. Unfortunately, that's just them facts. Could you explain that fact? Because I am thinking at this point, I need to actually just put out a magazine article about it because everyone's like, no, I no, no. So. I need to know more about the castration though. I <laughs> um, yeah. So don't try this at home. No, don't. Please, let's make this clear for anyone who does have furry little friends down there. Like, do not. Do not do this at home. <laughs> it is absolutely true that there are many ways to extend a male mammal's lifespan. And it's one of the 
foremost areas of research in gerontology, in part because a lot of rich men would like to live longer slash forever, especially in California. But all of the things that you do to intervene tend in human beings to be hard to implement and even harder to maintain. Like you can definitely eat better. That's going to help you. Don't smoke. Be a little less stressed. You can make friends, actually. Uh, One prominent gerontologist told me that a guy making friends can extend his life by seven years. Seven. You can gain seven years just by making some friends. Yeah. But there is one thing that you can do. There's one thing you can do to any mammal who is male to make him live longer. And you only have to do it once. And it's not a lot to maintain. You can cut off his balls and it will almost invariably make that male mammal live longer. We also know it in human beings because we have records. We haven't act, you know, gone out and done the SNP for the point of the science, but we have retrospective data. We know in the past when men have been castrated, okay? So the Korean Imperial Court had a habit of eunuchs. So they had males who had their testicles removed that were in the court. Very good medical records. American men who were institutionalized, usually for mental illness, and because we were absolutely terrible to people in the middle of the 20th century, and let's never do eugenics again, they also were castrated. And there's like a Central Asian tradition too. And in all of these cases, the males usually live longer, healthier lives than their regularly bald peers. They do. Their heart measures are better. Their peripheral vascular measures, when we have them, seems to be better. They're living longer. And the average gain is 14 years. That's bananas. It's the single most effective measure we have. It's actually not the banana. It's the grapes underneath. But it is... (laughs) It is the thing that you can do, and we don't know exactly why. We don't know why these little guys are the most dangerous thing that cis guys will ever own. We're working on it, but it's kind of the dirty little secret. Like, oh, your balls are dangerous, actually. Like, your prostate is also a problem if you're a male person. Like, 80% of cis men who reach the age of 80 in the United States will be diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point in that life. Like, that is so much larger than breast and ovarian and uterine cancer combined. It's an actual ticking time bomb. Like, get that checked out, okay? But more importantly, like, out in the front side, that's actually shortening their lives. And in other mammals, the sooner in life you get rid of them, the more effective it seems to be. So that's a good thing to figure out. And the reason we don't know it is simply that we just haven't been studying the biology of sex differences until the last few decades. But now that we are, we're going to figure this out, you know, because like, I don't think that's a good solution for aging men. No, it's not. A mass castration plan is not. It's not. The best thing we should do for them. (laughs) The way I was first introduced to Kat is I saw her on The Daily Show. And she was talking about her book. And one of the stories she talked about was castration. And they can live 14 years longer. And I thought, wow, here's a scientist talking about castration on national television. Who is this woman? What's so interesting is the science, just because we're studying men and we are excluding women, doesn't always just help men. And I think that castration is such a good example. Men aren't living as long. And if we studied why women are, maybe we could help men because no one wants to be castrated. No, there would be protect the balls legislation like 24 hours, it would be done. That would be the (laughs) fastest bill that passed ever. 
You are so right. We can remove uterus. We can remove breasts. That is common. But God forbid we touch a penis or a ball. We would have protect the balls legislation. And I want that t-shirt. One of the key discussions in Eve is about the many female figures that drove evolution or the many Eves that formed the humans of today. One of those Eves is Lucy. So Lucy is an Australopithecine. She lived about 3.2 million years ago. She's an exemplar of a key ancestor, a key moment in our evolutionary past where we were really becoming a lot less like chimps, but she's a moment where we're bipedal, we're highly social, we're tool users. She's moving things forward towards what will eventually be things that are more like humans. But one of the key things that a number of scientists have figured out about her is that she shared something we call the obstetric dilemma. And by that, I mean, we make big babies and we push them out of a small hole. Mm -hmm. Now, we figured this out by looking at Lucy's pelvis and estimating growth rates, and it seemed likely that, like us, she was trying to fit a watermelon-sized thing out of a lemon-sized hole, which, (laughs) just mechanically, is a bad idea. Yeah, difficult. You know, it's not like she had a choice in the matter. And so, I'm not the first to say it, it seems very likely that this is when midwifery starts. This is the dawn of human-type gynecology. This is when we had behaviors to intervene on our crap reproduction system. We had ways of making what is objectively terrible, just by any measure, better and more survivable for mother and child. And I argue that this is our most important invention. This was way more important than stone tools. This was way more important than fire. This is definitely more important than the wheel, and it's got nothing on the internet. We survived and thrived and managed to evolve into Homo sapiens precisely because we invented gynecology. It's the most important thing that our ancestors ever did. Wow. I could talk to you, Kat, forever, and the way you take biology and make it into song and prose and understandable, it's amazing. But Kelly, I know you have a lot of questions for Kat, so I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Kat, for the humor in which you kind of bring to the conversation and to not lose the scientific focus, which I think is incredibly important. So the marriage of the two is such a beautiful arrangement. You said before that the ignorance of women's bodies and their uniqueness isn't even a form of classic sexism. So can you talk a little bit about that and and what you mean by that? So that specifically is about how there is this knowledge gap. This is all about the male norm, right? That yes, there's sexism in the lab. Yes, there's sexism in funding, actually. Female scientists, it's been proven over and over again, tend to be less awarded at the highest tiers for, you know, the big grants. Like that's a thing. It's definitely getting better. There are more and more women scientists having stellar careers and being recognized for their brilliance and being financially supported. And likewise true in other marginalized communities that intersect with gender. You know, but it's like, Mm -hmm. it's still a thing. You know, sexism is still a thing, but it's not the only thing. That's the point I was trying to make there, that really this knowledge gap is driven by that assumption that we were making for so long that like, unless you're talking specifically about the ovaries of the uterus or the boobs, that it doesn't matter 
Now that's triggering for us because we're like, I love hearing that I don't matter. Hi, I don't hear that all day long or anything, you know, but in this case, it's more of a philosophical problem. And I think a lot of the excellent scientists that are saying, no, 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 it does matter are actually saying, we don't know what doesn't matter until we study it. And once we study it, then we'll be able to more definitively say, here's where it matters, here's where it doesn't, and here are some of the mechanisms that might be driving this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, it probably does not matter that you have ovaries when you take Tylenol. Probably doesn't, like for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, probably doesn't. It's pretty well tested, been on the market forever. Um, it might matter more than we think it does when you're pregnant. Because being pregnant is taxing on your liver. There are liver changes in pregnancy. And so right now we say, okay, if you're pregnant, take Tylenol instead of ibuprofen because ibuprofen can be bad for the baby for various reasons. But there's only now just more research into, but should you take Tylenol though, actually Mm. because of the liver, which has a lot less to do with the baby and a lot more to do with you. And I have seen a trend just saying in advice that's all about if you're a pregnant person, what's good for the baby, and very few bits of advice about what's actually good for the person carrying Mm. the baby. So I would love to see that change. I would love to see a lot more research into things that would support the health of the pregnant person and not necessarily prioritizing the bundle of cells she may be carrying that may eventually turn into a person but is not yet. Yeah, that. That, just that, there are subtleties is what I'm saying. Because what I've just described is absolutely sexism. Deprioritizing the health of a pregnant person over the potential health of a potential person. Oh my Mm -hmm. goodness, obviously that's sexism. But that comes into medical advice, that comes into what kind of research we do, that plays out, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it's sexism, some of it's not. We can improve on both fronts. Of course, I'm going to love someone who asks questions. She approaches it from such a scientific perspective, right? I love when she's like, there's no sexist cabal, but there is sexism. So you can you can say both things. Both can be true. It's not just either or. I mean, I think the fact that she doesn't mince words about it, she has a point of view, but she also has a point of view and she uses it and backs it up with science. She uses pop culture as a way to reinforce, like, these are the societal norms that we've seen play out, but it's also backed up by the fact that this is the way science has behaved. So our behaviors are rooted in the science that we've used to study who we are and how we operate and how we think and how we prescribe. She's trying to make a point and say, hey, listen, we could do better and we should be doing better. You mentioned it took 10 years to write this book. Did you know that it was going to be a bigger project or body of work when you initially embarked on it? Or was it something that was a bit of a surprise to you? Have you ever done something that took freaking forever? Mm -hmm. You know, you usually kind of maybe sort of know a little bit that it will. And then when you're in it and you're in the weeds, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. So both, right? I had never written a book before. At the same time as I was writing this book, I was doing my PhD on a only semi-related topic. This is not my PhD dissertation, you know, and I was pregnant very frequently. This was my 30s. And just so often, in fact, because I had so many miscarriages, that Mm. um, it was like I had a uterine-based hobby. I was just like frequently knocked up 
and or having a miscarriage and recovering and or trying to get knocked up and or actively avoiding it, but then doing it again. And then the IVF and then the other things and then the actual birthing and the recoveries. Like, I mean, at this point, if someone holds up a flashlight, I'm just like ready to drop trow. I'm like, oh, it's time, right? Because my my pelvis is just public territory. So many doctors and nurses and just people, maybe just people I wouldn't have known have been up there, you know? And so that was all going on while I was writing this book, which is to say I was living a fairly common woman's life, mm-hmm. a fairly common cis woman's life in her 30s these days while writing this book, mm-hmm. you know? which of course made things take longer, but also then shaped my understanding of what I was seeing. Like, you know, I was seeing in the literature that we have a terrible reproductive system, but man, that drove it home, Mm -hmm. you know, which also meant that I looked more into the placenta and I looked more into the evolution of how we give birth the way we do. Not simply the mechanics of it, but all the stuff that goes into reproduction well before the moment of pregnancy. In other words, Doing it the way I did it, living a woman's life while doing this research inevitably shaped the research and sent me in different directions and and made me test my assumptions in ways that probably if I hadn't been going through all that, I'm, I might not have. I think I knew it would be a big project. I didn't know it would be a decade. I knew that I didn't entirely know what I was doing because I'd never written a book before. And I was moving outside of my formal training. Now, I was an interdisciplinary researcher, which meant that I was used to going between departments. But I was going into like physiology and, and all kinds of other stuff. So I knew I had a mountain of research to get through. But I don't know, man. For the good and ill of a place like Columbia... They teach you that the questions that are usually worth chasing tend to be big and scary and tend to force you outside of your comfort zone. And it also teaches you that you have to be able to talk about your work to people who are not people with your training. So that made me uniquely suited, maybe, to a giant project like this. But that didn't mean it wasn't terrifying Mm -hmm. on the regular. Oh, I can't imagine. And thank you for sharing the range of emotion that you went through with regards to your miscarriages, the impact that that had on the story that you were able to come up with and the passion that you have for the project. So I'm sorry that you had to endure that, but what a tremendous outcome that you were able to achieve. I mean, again, I love taking credit, but I want to point out how common it is actually, Mm -hmm. how incredibly Mm -hmm. common. And I do in the book as well. Now, I had some fancy miscarriages. I've had an ectopic. I've had like hemorrhaging. I've had like this thing called an empty sac where you grow a placenta, but no embryo, you know, which is to say, for me, I am not in a position of trauma around it. I've moved through. I love my therapist. I'm all good. And I process things with humor. You know, that's my way. I know for others it's different. And even thinking about it might be triggering for some of your listeners. But I just want to reconnect to how freaking common this is. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that so many of us don't know that it's so common is because it's taboo. And Mm -hmm. why is it taboo? Because the female body is always already taboo. This thing that we're walking around in is the center of so many taboos. So for me, it was never going to be a question of do I admit or do I talk about, you know, when it comes to my own body, whether in the book or in promo spaces for the book or all of the occasions in which I've had a mic, 
Because if I can open the door, if I can break the taboo, then it's easier for others to speak. So if I can say, yeah, this is really hella common. And a lot of people have been all up in my vag with various (laughs) instruments. And that, yes, it nearly killed me a number of times. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to pretend it didn't. You know, then that allows others to not simply know it, but to also speak. Mm -hmm. And not only that, not only this public conversation that we can have about these things, but it also reaffirms the value of research into these things, right? Because the scientific community is not actually in an ivory tower. They live among us, okay? We are here. We are just people with jobs who have ideas that are influenced by all the conversations we have and the dinner parties and the jokes, all the things, right? Which then drives more money to this research, right? So the more we're able to break the taboo of talking about the female body and all of the things that are so common and even the rare stuff that we go through, it actually does make the world easier to live in for other people with those bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. It just does. Absolutely. To Carrie's point, we could talk to you for hours. We have a, a classic last question that we always like to ask our guests. And that is, if you have one minute with someone who is wanting to break out and do something differently, what do you tell them? You're already ready. There is no perfect scenario. There is no context that you're waiting for that is going to make this better. You're already ready. You're already equipped. Our entire species is best equipped for change. The most distinctive feature of our species is how adaptable we are, how capable we are at changing our minds, at changing what we do day to day, at building new patterns. That's literally why we're able to live in almost every environment on the planet as a species, whereas most species can't do that. So you're already ready. Whether or not you take a step, that's a different question. Mic drop. Amazing. You're already ready. Like, talk about action. Action Action-oriented. Absolutely. Your book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Thank you, Kat Bohannon, so much for being our guest and for dropping humor, lots of wisdom, and your own personal story on our guests and ourselves. We're so grateful. Thank you so much, Kat. Thanks for having me on. That was our conversation with paradigm shifter Kat Bohannon, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Eve. And this is The Breakout from Abracci Group. At Abracci Group, we specialize in coaching and consulting for brave new directions. Connect with us at abracigroup.com. And don't forget to subscribe to The Breakout so you never miss a new episode. And make sure you're following us on Instagram at The Breakout Pod. I'm Kelly Gunther. And I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. See you next time.